Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If your enemy is secure at all points, be prepared for him. If he is in superior strength, evade him. If your enemy is temperamental, seek to irritate him. If he is taking his ease, give him no rest. If his forces are united, separate them. If sovereign and subject are in accord, put division between them. Attack where he is unprepared. Appear where you are not expected. Sun Tzu, The Art of War Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails, episode 27.8, The Swedish Deluges, part 5. In the last episode, we examined the decisions made by the Danish king to get involved in the war with Sweden, as well as the significant treaties signed between the Poles and Brandenburgers that reimagined East Prussia as a true possession of the electorate with no strings of homage attached. Such a treaty was judged necessary to draw the elector of Brandenburg out of his Swedish alliance and push the Swedes further into their isolated corner. In this final episode, we examine what was perhaps the most significant development of the entire five-year war, the campaign against Denmark. By the end of the war, nobody could deny that Sweden hadn't triumphed over its old enemies in every aspect, and that its military reputation had been dramatically inflated as a result. Let's go to early 1658 to find out how it all went down. Having just judged the ice to be safe to cross, Charles Gustav was about to begin the march that was to make him so famous, as his Danish rival's islands were transformed into a walkway, thanks to the uncharacteristically harsh weather that had frozen the Danish straits. Let's begin. In early January 1658, Charles Gustav prepared his troops for what's known in history as the 
march across the belts. As Swedish forces negated the once considerable naval advantages accrued to the Danes, and began routing their unprepared land forces and militias. Unusually Arctic weather had frozen what had once been the three distinct waterways between the two major Danish islands of Funen and Zealand, and had transformed the region into a land bridge that the Swedes now sought to gingerly cross. Accounts recall that at some points, icy water reached up to the knees of the Swedes, and at many points gaps or breaks in the ice forced men and horse alike to swim. All in all, it was a terrifying experience for many, but once the first island of Funen was reached and the Danish response brushed away, confidence in the Swedes began to grow. This was the closest they had ever come to dealing heavy defeat at such a close distance to their Danish neighbour. Upon reaching the other side of Funen, the question then came of how to proceed. Should the Swedes risk the march across the larger body of frozen water, known as the Greater Belt, or should they take the longer route to the capital island of Zealand by tracing the smaller islands and their harder ice? Swedish engineers were again set to the task and concluded that the path of least risk was preferable. To be caught out in the centre of the Greater Belt would be disastrous and possibly fatal for the Swedish army. Imagine the prospect should the Swedish army and king disappear beneath the ice of the Danish Straits. The Danes would claim divine intervention, and the Swedes would be in a hopeless position. Having come this far, Charles Gustav could not turn back. He had to trace the smaller islands and make it to Zealand via the longer route. Leaving some of the weaker, colder men behind, he set off with the aim of the Danish capital in his mind, at the head of a professional army 10,000 strong. Over the course of early February 1658, Charles's force traversed the apparently insane path. It was not without incident, as setting up camp was difficult and skirmishes were fought regularly, as each small island brought with it new defenders. The irresistible Swedish reputation preceded the invaders, though, and Frederick III's court was collapsing around him. The triumphant image of king and army reaching the most vulnerable point of his enemy became reality, on the 8th of February 1658. The journey had actually only taken three days, and Denmark's capital was now within striking distance, something it hadn't been in history. Frederick III believed he would have more time, and placed lesser forces in the way of Charles Gustave to buy time, with the anticipation that the Swedes would wait until spring when the warmer weather arrived. Characteristically, Charles Gustave did no such thing, and by the 15th of February, he was in the outer suburbs of Copenhagen. Distraught, Frederick III sent a delegation to meet the army of his greatest rival. As a result, on the 8th of March, Denmark's position as a great power was ended de jour in international relations by the Treaty of Roskilde. This treaty effectively established the modern borders of Sweden as inhabiting the entirety of the remaining Danish holdings there. By acquiring the provinces of Blekinge and Scania, and making official the occupation of Holland, Denmark was removed from the western Swedish coast, and in a stroke Sweden had ended the Danish influence over the Sound. Further terms were equally humiliating for Denmark. The Danes had to prevent any shipping hostile to Sweden from entering the region, Denmark had to supply Sweden with a portion of troops, and two provinces of Norway were taken, which split the Norwegian state in two and provided unrestricted Swedish access to the North Sea over land.
having annihilated the power of his rival at home forever, Charles Gustave seemed destined for greatness. It is certainly worth your while looking at the blog, wdfpodcast.blogspot.ie, to see, by way of the provided maps, just how significant and shattering the peace treaty was. Surely Europe now shivered when it speculated as to where Charles Gustave's armies would venture next. Yet, when Charles Gustave examined the strategic position in spring in 1658, he did not see opportunities, only enemies. Paul Douglas Lockhart examines the problems that the triumphant Charles Gustave now had to consider. Quote, Roskilde marks the point at which most European statesmen began to view Sweden as a nuisance and not as the heroic champion of the anti-Habsburg cause. Gustavus Adolphus had been a hero. Charles Gustav was an unprincipled aggressor. The wars against Poland had alienated nearly all of Sweden's potential allies and enraged her traditional enemies. The Poles had recovered from their ignominious defeat in 1655-56 and were preparing to seek vengeance on Swedish holdings in Livonia and Estonia. Habsburg Austria was wary of Charles Gustav for his actions in Poland, as was Russia. Charles Gustav did not dare attack any of these opponents. The campaigns of 1656-57 had demonstrated that even a fresh, well-disciplined army could not hold on to Poland for long. And any direct action against Austria would run the risk of seriously alienating the German princes. End quote. Thus, though he had won a tremendous and historically significant victory, Charles Gustav was in the unfortunate position that Louis XIV would slide into in the future. His triumphs had been great, perhaps too great, and this all-powerful Sweden now faced challengers from every corner, and enemies that were determined to force Sweden to defend its newfound strength. And yet the strength was strongest on paper. The Swedish Empire had been forged by the sword and by military brilliance, like feats examined here, but it had no unifying qualities that could ensure its safety or security against foreign attack. In the majority of their empire, the Swedes were simply occupiers and were viewed as nothing more than occupiers by the inhabitants. To pay for the cost of this empire, bound together by force, was the responsibility of Stockholm, who levied dire levels of taxation and contributions from all but the noble classes. Defence added to the bills. Because Swedish culture could not bind the conquered territories to Stockholm and because the local citizens there were not willing to fight for it, Mercenary armies thousands of men strong had to be bought, and militia levied in unfavourable circumstances. Every year, the time came to pay the soldiery, tensions rose higher, but Charles could not disband the only thing keeping his empire intact. Military force was the glue that kept Sweden's domains in the Baltic states, Pomerania and northern Germany in place. Without it, Sweden's many enemies would surely swoop in and opportunistically take what they were in a better practical position to hold anyway. Yet at the same time, Charles Gustav could not do nothing with his army despite its necessity, since a still army and a bored army was a dangerous one, and the cost for the state was becoming intolerable. Thus, foreign campaigns of some kind were needed that would reap instant benefit and offset the costs of maintaining so many men under arms. That, of course, was the short-term solution, 
but short term was the only term open to Charles Gustave in the spring of 1658, when he faced a sea of enemies so set on his empire's downfall, and so set on revenging themselves upon what the Swedish king had done. Charles Gustave remained in Denmark as the treaty negotiations were finalised, but the fact that his enemies were mobilising against him necessitated planning attack against a new foe. The Swedes would have to leave Denmark to open the next phase of the war, but where could they attack? Some historians speculate that Charles wanted to focus on Brandenburg to punish its elector for switching sides, while others argue that he now recognised the need for peace and was planning a final grand campaign against the coalition that had grown against him. If the Swedes could win another decisive victory against a Polish-Habsburg-Brandenburg coalition, then that would set Charles Gustav on firm ground for the badly needed peace negotiations to begin. The Swedish king had no illusions about the wealth of enemies now ranged against him. He still wished to capture Danzig, though, and add Royal or West Prussia to his domains, but it remained in Polish hands, and the addition of Brandenburg meant that it would be even harder than before to organise a campaign against it. This was added to the more troublesome fact that across Poland, the remaining Swedish garrisons had fled north, and now held a number of important fortresses and towns in royal Prussia. Sweden's position in Poland had been seriously undermined by the weight of national resistance, to the point that John Casimir, with the aid of the Emperor, had raised an army of his own to attack Sweden's last holdings in its royal Prussian territory. The bloc of opportunistic parties Sweden had bound together the year before in Transylvania and the Cossacks had disintegrated, with the Cossacks soon to make a deal with Poland that would draw Russia back into the war against the Poles, thus distracting the latter from their war with Sweden. Thus the strategic situation was a troubling one for Charles Gustav, but what he did next undoubtedly made the situation far worse for his kingdom. Instead of selecting a new front from which to base the hopes of his empire, Charles elected instead to attack the enemy he had just pulverised into submission before, Denmark. The Treaty of Roskilde had shaken Danish sovereignty to its very core. Never in living memory had the state seemed so vulnerable to the outside world, and never had a foreign enemy come so close to overwhelming the state in its history. Much like the Poles, the Danes had been faced with a situation that they had never known before in war. Total defeat, a seemingly hopeless situation, and nothing but capitulation or ruin to choose from. The peace treaty with Sweden had spared the country's independence, but Frederick III could be positive about little else. If the Torstensen War had changed the Baltic status quo and ruined Danish ambitions for a restoration of its once mighty empire then this short, sharp war had eliminated from the minds of European statesmen any chance that Denmark could ever rise again. It was a national humiliation without precedent, and much like the Poles, the situation would be saved by the miscalculations of the Swedish king. Since the majority of his army remained in place on the home island of Zealand, Charles Gustav probably expected the Danes to comply with the terms of the treaty in full. Yet, Charles witnessed the Danes somehow dragging their feet on certain issues, like the stipulation within the Treaty of Roskilde that required the Danes to close their Danish straits if Sweden required it. 
Denmark remained utterly dependent upon these straits for its survival, notwithstanding their continued European relevance. To close them at the whim of the Swedes would have reduced Denmark to little more than a Swedish puppet. And indeed some within Stockholm believed that Charles Gustav had not gone far enough, that Copenhagen should have been raised, that Denmark's lands been brought under Swedish imperium, and that only then could Sweden's western flank be secure. Of course, the realities of European power politics could never allow Denmark to disappear from the map of Europe, and certainly not into a Swedish superstate. What was Sweden doing, some European statesmen asked, in its efforts to redefine the Baltic balance of power so thoroughly, when it was meant to be a guarantor of the peace of Westphalia? As we saw before, some powers like the Dutch were adamant that Sweden would never control the entirety of Baltic trade and that to transform the region into a Scandinavia united under Sweden would be intolerable to their interests. Other powers were equally wary. The Emperor Leopold remained concerned about the prospects of an all-powerful Swedish empire over Scandinavia, and the danger it could pose to Poland-Lithuania and his hereditary domains in the future. Frederick William of Brandenburg-Prussia had his own reasons too. He was certain that Charles Gustav would be gunning for him after he had changed sides in the previous year, and didn't much like his chances if Sweden was to empower itself further. Charles Gustav was thus going against the grain of European opinion even further than before, but by late spring 1658 he felt he had no choice. On the 7th of July 1658, Charles Gustav made clear in a meeting of the Swedish Privy Council that Denmark must be targeted yet again. It was an image not dissimilar from that of Rome demanding the destruction of Carthage, but the true goal for Charles was security, not annihilation for the sake of it. He felt that, unless Danish sovereignty had been compromised for good, Sweden's other enemies could never be dealt with. This was a somewhat paranoid view of events, since post-war Denmark was nowhere near capable of striking back at Sweden after the Treaty of Roskilde. But when Charles was informed that the Danes were dragging their heels in negotiations, and when he got wind of rumours that the Dutch were attempting to orchestrate a common policy with the Danes to the detriment of Sweden, he felt that he had to act. Thus, on the 24th of August, 1658, the second war in a year between Sweden and Denmark began. As Paul Douglas Lockhart notes, quote, Denmark was no better prepared, perhaps even less so, for the audacity of its enemy than it had been the year before. But this time, Denmark had powerful friends. End quote. Indeed, Denmark may have been removed from the European state system as a sovereign state altogether, had widespread condemnation and, more importantly, intervention not followed. That said, though, the Danes did put up a valiant defence. Unable to force a surrender of Copenhagen, since Charles wished to raise the city anyway, the Swedes laid siege to the Danish capital and confidently awaited its fall. But this time things were different. The Dutch Republic had had enough. Having watched from the sidelines, intervening in previous years like during the siege of Danzig in 1656, when the Swedes were perceived to have endangered their interests, a second attack on the defenceless Danes was a bridge too far. As well as that, this time because the Swedes had struck first, the Danish-Dutch defensive pact came into effect, 
and Dutch warships mobilised to make their way towards the Swedish blockade of Copenhagen in early October 1658, and by late October had reached the formidable Swedish ring of ships. Forcing their way through for the sake of their Baltic interests, the Dutch shattered the Swedish position and ruined, once again, Charles Gustav's plans. The intervention of the Dutch proved critical. This Battle of the Sound resulted in a key Dutch naval victory, with the Dutch losing only one ship to the Swedish eight, a result that also restored some much-needed confidence to the Dutch after the depressing war experience against the English. The Swedes thus repulsed from the sea around Copenhagen, provisions could get through, which refreshed the Danish defence and made Charles Gustav more desperate to force a decision. Nonetheless, the end game was not over. It began in early 1659, with the Swedish forces accumulating war stores and preparing a grand assault against the capital of their foe. When the attack was launched on the 11th of February 1659, the Danish king finally led by example and fought side by side as common man, immensely aiding his previously uninspiring performance in the process. Frederick III's insistence of combating the Swedish invader directly seemed to galvanise the morale of his people. The Danes were able to beat back their eternal foe and end the Swedish campaign of terror. Initially, it appeared as though this loss would make little difference to Charles Gustav's determination. He remained focused on wiping out Danish independence, but the clock was ticking. Although the siege had not been lifted on Copenhagen throughout the spring of 1659, Dutch ships were beginning to filter through the sound. Once they acquired numerical superiority, they struck, forcing their Swedish counterparts away from the Danish capital and teaming up with the Danish fleet to impose a blockade on Swedish shipping and transports throughout its Baltic Empire. With the added dimension of a threatening naval presence, Charles Gustav ordered the siege of Copenhagen to be lifted in early April, and by the end of the month, Swedish forces had evacuated the Danish Straits and home islands. Denmark had survived the Swedish deluge yet again. Charles Gustav wasn't able to be as tenacious as he may have liked to be with the Danes, thanks to the presence of an army led by Frederick William, the Elector of Brandenburg, and composed of vengeful Danes, Poles, Brandenburgers and Imperials. Unable to muster enough force to defeat this new army, Charles Gustav attempted to stall for time in the late spring of 1659 as he judged which way the wind was blowing. His procrastination was taken as defiance by the maritime powers of the Dutch and England, who both wanted to end the war and take stock of the damage so as to not lose any more profits from the lucrative Baltic trade. The war had cost the Dutch especially, thanks to the heavy impact the war made on insurance increases, piracy and the collapse of their trading partners on land. The Dutch were also incredibly wary of allowing the Swedes to control the entirety of the Baltic trade, hence their intervention when Charles Gustav appeared to be going too far, such as at the Siege of Danzig in 1656 or here at Copenhagen. The Dutch had made it clear that they would not tolerate a major change in the status quo, yet even they could not turn back the clock that Swedish arms had forcibly wound on. While Charles Gustav had debated negotiating, his enemies had taken advantage of his absence in Pomerania and invaded the Swedish holdings there. The Swedish defence mostly held, with no major loss in territory and certainly none that would be taken to the later peace treaty. 
Yet Charles Gustave recognized the fact that his forces would not be able to endure in such a condition. He had been relieved somewhat from the Russian pressure, though, by the Polish collective decision to sign the Treaty of Hadiak on the 16th of September 1658. This agreement between the Poles and their Cossack former enemies created an incredible compromise. It essentially crafted the Ukrainian element onto the Polish-Lithuanian name, creating a Polish-Lithuanian-Ruthenian commonwealth. However, although the Cossacks were a tad divided about how to react to this, many had spent their lives opposing the Poles and now they were to form a partnership with them, Russia's reaction was less grey noting the Treaty of Hadiak as a violation of the previous Pereyaslav Treaty the Cossacks had signed with Moscow in 1653, which had led to the original Russian intervention against the Poles, Swedish intervention and then basically everything else, Russia resumed the previous war it had put on hold against the Poles, put the war against the Swedes on hold instead, and set in motion a new series of headaches for Poland. In other words, Charles Gustav could be content that neither Russia or Poland appeared to have gained the upper hand by 1659, thus endangering Sweden's position in the process. However, he could not fail to notice the tide of foreign opinion against his kingdom, either. In May 1659, a series of negotiations between the Dutch, England and France had resulted in the concert of The Hague emerging from the dregs of the Northern Wars. This loose agreement was the brainchild of Johann de Witt, the new Grand Pensionary of Holland. He hoped to protect Dutch Baltic interests, and he was able to co-opt English help, thanks to the mutual interest of the English Protectorate, but France was more resilient to be seen to act directly against Sweden, who it considered its only ally against the Habsburgs. What France did give was its adherence to Johann de Witt's limited aims, and the attempts to close ranks that were led by de Witt here would lead in turn to a Franco-Dutch alliance. But that's a story for another podcast. The agreements within the Concert of the Hague stipulated that Scandinavia should return to peace as per the terms of the 1658 Treaty of Rosgild between Denmark and Sweden, as well as per the terms of the Treaty of Elbing between the Dutch and Swedes that had followed the earlier Dutch intervention during the Swedish siege of Danzig in 1656. There was also a constantly emphasised desire to forge a wider peace between the Poles, Habsburgs and Russians so as to ensure Baltic security and freedom of movement. Gestures towards peace were by no means against the Swedish interests. Much of Sweden's beleaguered garrisons in West Prussia were vulnerable to attack by the larger Allied armies. And the pressure was beginning to tell. It may have been telling on Charles Gustav too. After years of campaigning around Europe and undertaking some of the most daring and significant military acts of any monarch of his era, thanks to the stress and exhaustion, the 37-year-old king appeared many years beyond his actual age. His military successes were innumerable, yet still his enemies remained in a league against him, despite the breathtaking feats he accomplished when he undeniably smashed his empire's greatest enemies. To compensate, Charles made attempts to reinforce his garrison's morale so as to boost their resilience and hopefully wrest a better deal at the bargaining table. But his efforts would prove fatal. Ignoring his physician's advice to rest, the Swedish king visited his forces in early January 1660 at Gothenburg and soon after came down with a cold. When the symptoms persisted and only grew worse, it became clear that Charles was suffering from pneumonia. 
For a month, the Swedish king lay in bed immobilized, as more and more terrifying medicinal remedies were attempted on his increasingly frail body. Though he beat the cough, sepsis began to set in, and Charles Gustav, conqueror of Sweden's known world and copyright distributor of the Swedish deluges, died on the 13th of February 1660. On the day before his death, he had named his son Charles XI as heir. Another regency thus awaited Sweden. Charles Gustav's death necessitated an end to the war for Sweden, because it had now lost the war's greatest champion and symbol. Though the coalition of enemies had the potential to bully Sweden into a corner, it was to the Swedish fortune that the Dutch or anyone else proved unable to mobilise enough common ground between anyone to pressure Sweden to do anything. The Treaty of Copenhagen between Denmark and Sweden on the 27th of May 1660 ended their war, while the Treaty of Olivia on the 3rd of May between the Poles, Swedes, Habsburgs and Brandenburgs ended theirs. Russia was a bit trickier. A truce had been signed between Russia and Sweden once Russia turned its gaze towards the Poles in September 1658, but this wasn't formalised in a treaty until December of that year, when Russia and Sweden signed the Treaty of Valasar. As per the terms of this treaty, Russia appeared to gain much in Swedish Livonia, but a few years later, fearful of Swedish opportunism amidst the backdrop of a Polish resurgence and Russian backpedalling, Russia signed back over these gains to keep Sweden sweet in the Treaty of Cardus in spring 1661. In effect, it reverted the Baltic region back to the status quo antebellum of the 1617 Treaty of Stolbovo, the terms of which Russia had spent a generation attempting to reverse. The resulting relief that came over Europe following the peace revealed a number of issues. First and foremost, the uncomfortable fact remained that the Baltic region was vital to all European states, but that it was simultaneously the most conflict-ridden place on the continent. Another fact concerned Sweden itself. Despite its status as a guarantor of Westphalia, Sweden willingly escalated the war for its own benefits. One could of course argue that, for the sake of the balance of power, Sweden needed to intervene but when one considers thereafter what Sweden did to its helpless Polish and Danish enemies, this argument holds little weight. Europe had been left stunned by Swedish successes, the likes of which had never before been experienced. The totality of the Polish and Danish defeats by Swedish arms resurrected its military reputation to heights not seen since Gustavus Adolphus in the early 1630s. Yet, for all the admiration Swedish actions incurred, they also brought with them a level of fear. If Sweden was capable of such incredible acts of such shocking alterations to the European balance of power, what would she be capable of in the future? Her empire showed no signs of slowing down, and her military achievements now spoke loudly for themselves. Sweden in 1660 was at the height of its military prowess, the empire it had carved out of the continent for itself could be aimed threateningly at any point in Europe, and thus the attempts began following 1660 to court Sweden into a firm alliance. The Dutch had begun this trend of breaking with old tradition, but they were not the last. 
France was soon to emerge with a newly independent king at its helm. Desperate for glory, Louis XIV would turn his diplomats to the one place where French money would be most graciously received and, apparently, following its military performance in this war and the devastation it had caused, best spent. It was to be a partnership that nearly brought Sweden's empire to the brink of ruin. Sweden had accomplished tremendous military feats in its five years of war. Its Polish enemy had been defeated many times over, and its great power status appeared extinguished. Yet diplomatically, Sweden had effectively sacrificed one of the main reasons for entering the war in the first place. Charles Gustav had never wanted to wage war against Poles, Russians, Germans, the Holy Roman Emperor, the Dutch, the Danes or Brandenburg all at the same time. Yet, thanks to the stunning success of his campaigns, Europe had collectively responded with just such a result. Charles Gustav must have known that he had become distracted from the original goals of exacting much-needed monies from Poland after a successful war. His success, it seemed, had been too great. By suggesting in a post-Westphalia world that Sweden was attempting once again to establish hegemony over a portion of Europe, Charles Gustav became separated from his true motives. He had not wanted the Thirty Years' War Part Two. What he had wanted was a short, sharp war that would ensure Sweden got a share of the spoils. He had not expected Poland to fall, or at least not to crumble as totally as it had. His underestimation of his rivals and his relative unpreparedness for how badly foreign opinion would view the Swedish deluges must be considered critical failures of Charles Gustav's reign. Because of this lack of consideration, he had inflamed the whole of Europe, save for a few minor states, against his empire, and he had reminded these same regions how Sweden had gained its beastly, fearsome reputation in the first place. In 1655, instead of forging a Swedish policy that would address its ingrained problems, Charles Gustav put his reform plans on hold for the sake of glory and a quick book. For that, Charles Gustav loses some leader points. Arguably, though, he gains enough to make up for it, and then some, by his unquestionable triumphs over his Danish neighbour that some historians believe came close to forcing Denmark into becoming a junior partner of Sweden's sprawling empire not to mention its vanquishing of everything Poland could muster against it for years. By the time war was over in 1660, nobody could deny that on paper, Sweden was at the height of its imperial power. And yet, in 1660, pretty much everyone wanted to deny it, because Sweden had lost the virtual entirety of her friends after warring across the continent, submerging its two mortal enemies, and forcibly changing the status quo of Europe. The Swedish Empire, now in the course of its second regency in less than two decades, badly needed reform. It needed a way to defend its far-flung, culturally varied empire from the ambitions of its enemies, particularly the newly emerging ones in Brandenburg and Russia. To do this it needed an army, but to have an army one needed money, and this for Sweden was in short supply thanks to the absolute tear that the nobility had been on in the pre-war years, buying crown lands at knockdown prices and reaping the benefits of their tax-free status. The Swedish government knew that change was required to end this unfavourable and ultimately unfeasible relationship, but the nobility remained enmeshed in the new regency government, 
despite the dying wishes of the late Charles Gustave, who had attempted to place his own family members at key positions in the Regency just in case the nobility tried to throw its weight around and backtrack on the limited progress he had made before the war. Charles Gustave was no fool. Had he lived longer, he certainly would have turned his attention to bettering the situation that the Swedish crown now faced at home, just as he had done before the war broke out. Yet, historians suspect that he would not have found the nobility as susceptible to the concept of sacrifice for the common good, following the five years of war that Sweden had had to finance. The Thirty Years' War had driven Sweden's backward financial mechanisms to breaking point and beyond, but the people had been ready to pay thanks to the professed goals of the campaigns and the steady diet of propaganda that they had been subjected to. After Westphalia, there was an expectation among the lower classes that Swedish government would address the state's problems, yet instead they got to fight another war that they had to pay for. This time, devoid of such professed goals save glory and reputation, and with honourable declarations of religious defence notably absent, the lower peasant as much as the common man had had enough. This is a point well echoed by Paul Douglas Lockhart. Quote, When Gustavus Adolphus had been compelled to ask his subjects to pay higher taxes and tender more conscripts for the German war, the people of the Vasa state, though inured to hardship, were still relatively fresh and undeterred by the prospects of the conflicts to come. When Charles Gustave did the same in 1654-5, the Swedish population was in much worse shape. The lower orders had already come close to threatening resistance at the 1650 Reichstag, and made it clear that they were no longer willing to accept wartime levels of conscription and taxation unless the nobility made parallel sacrifices. Maintaining Sweden's status as a great and influential power in the mid-1650s was a much more difficult proposition than first asserting that influence had been in 1630. End quote. The silent aspect of my podcasts are often the toll that the wars in question take on the people, but in the case of these wars throughout the latter half of the 17th century, it's almost impossible not to notice the outcry. Revolt, revolution, social change and upheaval faced all European powers in different forms after Westphalia. In England it was civil war, in France it was the Fronde, in Sweden it was the discontent of the peasantry. Having endured the Thirty Years' War, the people of Europe and their descendants likely hoped that such sacrifices would be worth it, and that their governments would make their sacrifices good. It is an idea not dissimilar to that espoused by the post-war populations of the world in 1919. Just like those 20th century populations though, the peoples inhabiting Europe in the latter half of the 17th century would be faced time and time again with the tragic fact that no matter the issue, the pursuit of war would take precedence over their well-being, and that eternal peace was, for all intents and purposes, a mere pipe dream. It would be a time before war would be viewed as the failure of state policy by its populace. For the moment, war was simply the state of affairs that occurred when diplomacy failed. In this episode we have concluded what history refers to as the Second Northern War, but which can also be called the Swedish deluges as far as I'm concerned, considering the absolute romp of conquest that Sweden went on in these five years.
It wasn't exactly what the doctor ordered for the financially and domestically troubled Swedish state, but I'm sure you'll agree it makes for great history and, hopefully, a great podcast. So I hope you've enjoyed this glimpse back into an era you may not have known very well before. Sweden did not simply stop after 1648. In fact, the Swedish story is far from over and becomes even more interesting as the century progresses. For the sake of background, Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And though it is important we begin the Swedish story here. I hope you'll agree that it was a worthwhile endeavour, and thanks very much for listening to it. Another small reminder, if you will, to please remember that When Diplomacy Fails is a fan-supported and listener-supported podcast, so please be fit. Check out the blog, wdfpodcast.blogspot.ie, send me an email, wdfpodcast.hotmail.com, review us favourably on iTunes, subscribe, download... Find us on Facebook and like the page to keep updated. As well as, of course, using word of mouth by telling your mates, your dog, your kids, your enemies, everyone, all about what we do here, and about how excited Zach, and hopefully you guys get, when diplomacy fails. Thanks! deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 